We want to welcome the live stream audience to our service this evening. And uh, we're continuing in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. We've covered the first four verses, but really last week, we, or two weeks, last week, we spent most of our time, I'm kind of confused because we didn't meet here last week, but we did have Bible study uh, online. Uh, we were in chapter 11, or chapter 10, which was all about uh, David and uh, preparation for what we're experiencing tonight. Um, the subject matter is, is sin, and that unfortunately is not a popular subject today. Uh, many do not want to hear that word. They don't want to have it in their conversations. Um, they want to be removed from it. It doesn't give a good, them a good feeling. It doesn't uh, resonate with the general public. But uh, if you're true in your faith to Christ, then all the Scripture has meaning and purpose to you. And therefore, we can't ignore sin. We just can't ignore what the Scripture has to say about it. So we'll be looking at that this evening. But let's begin with prayer, and uh, let's, let's pray and ask God to not only bless our service, but also those who are not here. Father, these are crazy times, it seems, in our nation and in our world. And uh, if we didn't know any better, if you had not given us forewarning by the prophets, but also by the apostles in the New Testament of these days that were going to come, then we would think that somehow somebody had pushed you off the throne and that there was a coup in heaven. But that's not the case. You made, made it very clear that the very things that we're seeing would happen. And so that just really supports and substantiates you as the one true living God. And we're thankful that we can now open the Bible tonight and we can find answers and we can find comfort and we can find encouragement and strength for the days that we're living in. Lord, I continue to pray for those in Afghanistan who are going to be facing physical, emotional, mental abuse. We pray for the church in Afghanistan. Uh, one of our own missionaries, Tom Doyle, who is a missionary in the Middle East, said that Afghanistan <laughs> is the number one fastest growing church in the, in the world. Afghanistan. And we don't see that in the news. We don't hear that spoken of in the newspaper. Uh, it, they're not interested in that story. But the truth is, wherever persecution exists, the body of Christ flourishes. And so our hearts and prayers are with them and those who now have a new, a new system of government, new leadership from a really a, a terrorist organization. And we pray for them. We pray for their protection and safety. We pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth in power and that many more would be saved. We pray that the same fervency of the church in Afghanistan would come to the church in America that we in America would, in seeing some of these things that are now being mandated and some of the changes that have come to our nation. And I can remember back when after 2001 and 9-11, the question that people were asking was, will we ever, will that ever be the same? Will we ever go back to that normal before 9-11? And I don't believe it ever did. And now we're seeing even greater issues happening within our nation. We're seeing a sexual revolution. We're seeing political powers that are isolating people 
and I don't think we're ever going to recover. I, I just think, Lord, this is all part of what you spoke of, and the church needs to exist and thrive in any type of climate, any type of an environment. And I pray that we would have even a greater voice that we would see like the church in Afghanistan. These are the times when we need to profess Jesus Christ is Lord, and we need to share the gospel with others who don't know Him. And if, if it brings persecution, so be it. But that we would be faithful vessels of Christ. I pray that, Lord. I pray for the, uh, the country of Haiti and for the devastation, the loss of lives, for the complete, utter, and it has been that way as long as I've uh, been an adult that Haiti has been under corrupt government, and uh, the people suffer there. And we pray for them. We lift them to you. But especially in light of the earthquake and in light of the flooding from the hurricane. We think about uh, Hurricane Ida and the damage all the way from Louisiana, which was severe, all the way up into New York City and uh, all around. And we just pray for, there's been so many lost uh, who have lost their lives, and there's been flooding and people that are uh, losing their homes. We, we pray for people, Lord. We pray that you would bring to them comfort and encouragement. We pray for those who don't know you, that they would turn to you and cry out to you. Sometimes the only time that we'll turn to you is when we're in deep trial and trouble. So we pray that, Lord, you would be great in this day and, uh, and continue to move mightily. And Father, we pray that tonight again you would speak to us by your word and it would, it would strengthen our resolve to live lives that are pleasing to you. No person here is perfect. We're not looking for perfection here. We're looking for faithfulness. We're looking for a heart that is bent towards God, not towards worldly thinking. And I pray, God, that tonight by the Holy Spirit you would speak into our lives and this uh, objective teaching would have a subjective uh, effect on us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, again, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be uh, in chapter 11, verse 5 is where we'll begin. The subject for the evening is sin. There is a mystery to iniquity. A mystery to iniquity. And the mystery is that when, when, sin, when temptation comes to us and we begin to entertain that thought, that action of temptation, it becomes sin. We, we give birth to sin, James said. The problem with that is the mystery to iniquity is that it's not going to stop there. It never stops with the initial trivial sin, we might call it. It, it. it wants to go further. It wants to take us downward into more sin. And this is the story of David's life. David was known as a man after God's own heart. David's a man after God. And yet this man after God also had a heart that was deceptive, was evil like every other human being. Someone was arguing that point with me. I, I had said that the Scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? That's what the Bible says. 
And that's why every human being needs salvation. That's why Jesus died on the cross for all sin, all sinners. The reason was because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there are those who will say, no, but that's a nice person. There are good people on the earth and whatever. Uh, they're sinners. They are destined for hell unless they receive Jesus Christ and the perfect plan of God for our salvation. And what's interesting is people will say to me, well, you know, I feel like those who go bad, those who have a bad heart, it's, it's because they were raised in a certain environment. And in that environment, they didn't really have a choice. They didn't have a chance. They weren't given a fair shake like everybody else in the, in the world. And we, we make excuses. And, and, and what we're trying to do is take away this picture of sin and replace it with victimization. Everybody's a victim of something. And sin's never the blame. And I said to the person that said that to me, and I, I'll tell you where I first heard it, and I thought it was brilliant. Uh, well, I would like to tell you, but I can't think of his name right now. Anyway, um, Dennis uh, Pr uh, Prager, Prager, Dennis Prager said it. But the reality is, in the Garden of Eden, when God created the Garden of Eden, when He created man and woman, I ask you this question. Was that a perfect environment? Was, before Adam sinned, was it perfect? A perfect environment. Nothing in the environment that would cause Adam to sin. That's when Adam chose to sin. I'm sorry? Yes, yes. But again, it wasn't like Adam had this victim experience. He made a choice. So the reality is that we need to call sin, sin, and not give it some victim name. Not call it a disease, a sickness. Sin is sin. And that's not a popular view today. I don't really care. The Bible says it's very important that we talk about it. And so David is the poster child of practicing the, the mystery of iniquity, letting sin grab his heart and then letting sin play out in a downgrade where it takes him downward into greater sin. And tonight, the story out of David's life really exemplifies that. So last week, we looked at chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. In that chapter, or in, that ver in those four verses, we learned that David was supposed to be out fighting against the enemy because it was springtime. And in the winter, all the armies would go home, and then when spring would come, things would warm up, they would go back to the battlefield and continue their, their battles. And it says that when David should have been out on the battlefield with his army... He chose to stay home. And so he goes and he, he rests out on the veranda overlooking the city. Obviously, he's got a palace. His palace is taller than every other building, and he's able to see the rooftops of everybody else. And at the same time that David is drifting out there where he should not be, he's supposed to be off fighting the battle, he's at home, and probably entertaining some thoughts. Um, 
why would you go out on the veranda before dark? What are you there looking at? At the same time, you've got Bathsheba, who has chosen, while her husband is off fighting with the army of Israel, she chooses to go and bathe on the rooftop. Neither of them are making wise decisions. They see each other, or at least David sees her, calls for her, she comes to him. She was not forced to come to the king. She chose to go and see the king. They had relations, and now we pick up at verse 5, it says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, the English Standard Version that you're reading, or that I'm reading from tonight, really hides a more accurate uh, sentence form uh, in the Greek. And the King James, I believe, the New King James, they both have it differently. They say, she told David, I am with child. When did she say that to David? Right after she conceived and she realized that she was pregnant. She called it a child. Not a fetus. Not a blob. She saw it as a child. That's a whole other story, right? But we need to see that the Bible, I'm telling you from front cover to back, it is all about the support of life. The Bible does not choose to pick which lives live and which ones don't. The Bible supports life of the unborn. And so she says to David, you know, I'm pregnant. Someone once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to spend. We're going to see that tonight in this story. I'm sure that David, as, as he was lusting after Bathsheba when she was bathing, I'm sure he, this never entered his mind. Man, I'd like to murder her husband so I can have his wife. Look at that woman. Man, I want to have a baby with her. That was not the initial lustful thought. It was, I want her. A temporal feeling that David had. And he was going to act on it and not think through what he was saying. You see, that's the thing. Sin never starts with us looking at the long haul and looking at the big picture. Sin only attaches to the immediate fulfillment or satisfaction of whatever type of sin that is. It could be, it doesn't have to be sexual. It could be picking up your phone. Did you hear the latest? It could be gossip. And the other person on the other end, they answer the phone, have you heard the latest? And, 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 and they, they could say, okay, is this something that we ought to be talking about? Or the temptation, no, I haven't, please share. And the response is like a dump truck, a garbage truck. That you ever had a, gar every, every Wednesday, the garbage truck backs up down my street because it's a cul-de-sac. They don't want to go.
going because they can't turn around. So they back in. And the whole way down the street, I hear beep, 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 beep. It goes on for about 10 minutes, you know, and uh, drive you nuts. Uh, that's what you're letting someone who's gossiping and you're on the other end. That's what you ought to be thinking. Beep, 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 as the truck is backing up and opening up and all the garbage is being dumped in your phone into your ear. But we don't think that way when the temptation to catch some gossip comes along. That's the mystery to iniquity. You don't see the whole picture when you're in sin. It starts with a look. It starts with a touch. It starts with a feeling. It first appeals to the sensual. It doesn't appeal to the sensical, the practical. If, 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 it, if, if you thought sensically about what you're about to do, you wouldn't do it in most cases. Bathsheba, while her husband was away fighting a war, she didn't come to a logical conclusion to have a bath on the roof where someone might see her. That's not logical. It probably started with a sensual thought or temptation. And now what started as a temptation became an act of sin. And once sin has taken hold, it takes you further than you want to go. Now there's a child involved in this, in this situation. Their sin of adultery stands to be exposed because of a child. They both bit off more than they thought. It, it, it took them farther than they want to go. It's going to keep them longer than they want to stay. By Bathsheba reaching out to David with the news that she's pregnant, she, that tells us that she is wanting him to take the necessary steps to avert any consequences of their sin. Why? Why is that important? For fear of humiliation, for fear of shame or guilt? Um, I don't think so. Not in that day. Oh, it would have been shameful and fearful, no question. But that's not the big deal. You know what the big deal is in that day? Leviticus chapter 10, verse 20. And it says this, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So already... He's engaging in a cover-up with David. So verse 6 comes along. So David sent word to Joab. Who is Joab? The commander of David's mighty army that's out battling. He sends a messenger with word, Send me Uriah the Hittite. That would be Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Can you imagine how awkward that conversation had to be as David tried to play it off like there's no, no real reason that I brought you in. So, hey, let's talk about how's everybody doing on the battlefield and how's the battle going and all a cover-up. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. When, when, when it says wash your feet in this way, it's actually a reference. Why don't you go home and sleep in your bed? They would wash their feet before getting in their bed. Why don't you go on home and go to bed? Why? Because your wife's there. And if you sleep with your wife, now there's an alibi for how you came up with a baby. And Uriah went out of the king's, 
house, and there followed him a present from the king. And Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, David, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Whoo! Talk about heaping coals of fire on David's head. And he didn't even know it. When David received word of Bathsheba's pregnancy, what he should have done is enter a season of repentance. That should have been enough. Remember how I told you that in, in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13? Let's turn there real quick. I want to read it for you. Go to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and let's go to uh, chapter 3. And let's look at verse 10. Whoop, I'm in 2 Corinthians. That won't work. <clears throat> well, maybe it's 10.13. Yes, not chapter 3, chapter 10, sorry. Okay. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. When somebody says to you, or when you say to them, why did you do that? And then they go into this victim story as if nobody has ever experienced what I had to go through. If you only knew what I had to face, okay? Well, here, you take them right to this passage. Hey, friend, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And look what it says next. God is faithful, and He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when Satan tempts, when the flesh tempts, God will always be there and He will make a way of escape for you. You don't have to give in to the temptation. One of the areas that is very troubling in our world today is the number of men who are hooked on pornography. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction is, is not nearly as difficult as porn. And the reason why, in order to, to, to be a drug addict, you have to have drugs in your hand. You can't go to a laptop and look at drugs and then, you know, get a high. The same is true with alcohol. You have to have alcohol in your hand. Not true for sex. You don't even have to have a laptop. 
just in your mind. Conceive it. And you can actually have a sexual addiction. It starts right there in the mind. And yet, even with that type of an addiction, God will make a way of escape. When a man confesses that he has a, a problem with sexual addiction, the first and best thing for him to do is confess it to his spouse, get it out on the table, and then, you know, obviously confess to God, and then get in fellowship with godly men. That man does not need more private time. He needs to be in the fellowship of other believers. Every night of the week, if necessary, go meet with some men. Do whatever you got to do or meet with your wife. You want to be open. You want accountability. You want, you want to share with transparency what's going on in your life. That's, how, that's your way of escape. For someone to say, there's no way of escape for me, with what, what I, that's not true. God will make a way of escape for you. But it will cost you something to follow God. It'll cost. It's, I, I've never been in those types of addiction, life-controlling issues. I can't imagine how difficult it is. I, I have been around men who have those types of life-controlling issues. Uh, drugs, alcohol, sexual addiction. And it is incredibly hard. But God will give them a way of escape. He'll do it for a woman as well whatever her sin might be. And so here's David, you know, God's giving him a way of escape. All David had to do was recognize, when she said, hey, I'm pregnant, that's God saying, David, repent. Come clean right now. But he didn't. What did he do? He went further into sin. It was bad enough that he got with this woman, and, and now God's given a way of escape, and he's like, I'm not concerned about that. I got I to gotta cover myself. And he goes the opposite direction. So he lays a scheme to draw Bathsheba's husband back home so that he'll sleep with his wife and therefore provide the reason for her pregnancy. Sounds like a good plan if you're a sinner. Only problem is Uriah is a righteous man. Uriah is a man of integrity. Uriah is a loyal man to the king. He's a Hittite. He's a better Jew than the Jew. David's a Jew. And David's using deception as a tool to fix his problem. God is using the righteousness and loyalty of Uriah to try and bring David to the end of his wicked plot against his wicked uh, uh, corruption and, and, and have him repent. But David's not willing to look at the way of escape. Satan is a master deceiver, church. And the very idea that we can hide our sin with deception means that we are the ones being deceived. You cannot hide sin from God. You cannot hide sin forever. The Bible says your sins will find you out. Eventually, it'll come out. Our sin is never hidden from God, and neither is it hidden from our conscience. Our, 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 uh, uh, our sin hinders our fellowship with God, but it also hinders our fellowship with other believers. See, I'm not talking about sin from a person who's lost. I'm talking about the sins of believers. If you're in sin in some area, let's say your sin is gossip, and you know it, and you're still walking in it, 
And then somebody comes up to you at church after service, and you say, hey, how are you doing? I'm not doing so well. Why? What's going on? How, how can I help you? Well, to be honest with you, I'm a gossip. What kind of ministry are you going to have with them? <laughs> you don't have a ministry. Your sins in private affect other people. Now you can't minister to them because that's your sin. Well, you could. You could get honest and say, you know what? I've got the same sin. Let's go find somebody who doesn't have it. <laughs> and let's receive some ministry. Let's best, best yet, let's find somebody who used to gossip and they got victory over it. We need to get with that person. That's the church being the church. It's not perfect people. It's not people that are never sin. It's people that recognize their sin, confess it, and then they get help because God's provided a way of escape for the believer. So let's make it personal tonight. Let's make it subjective. The real question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Am I prepared to face sin? Am I prepared to face sin? We're not talking about discussing somebody else's sin here. Am I prepared to look at my own sin? Am I willing to let God give me a way of escape? The first way of escape is to confess it. It's a sin. Until you confess it as sin, Jesus can't help you. I want you to get this picture in your mind that Christ is, the Bible says, He's our mediator, right? What does God say about Satan? What did Jesus say about Satan? That he comes before God every single day as what? The accuser of the brethren and cistern. Not cistern. Okay. So here's God who has provided a way for believers through his son to have an advocate because we need it. What we're not aware of is that every day Satan is going before God and saying, did you see what Greg did? Did you notice the thought that he had? Did you see that impatience in him? Did you see him blurt out? That's what Satan's doing. And Jesus is right there in the court of God. And God is a just God, by the way. God's not like our Supreme Court that's capable of error. God's never made a mistake. And so when Satan says, he's a sinner, he just sinned, God acknowledges it. Only Jesus steps up. And for the person who is able to humble themselves and call upon Jesus, our advocate, and say, Christ, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. That is like saying sick him to a dog because your advocate now goes before the Father in your behalf. He went to the cross. He paid the full price for all sin. And when you are able to confess sin, he's able to stand before God while Satan is running his trap about how bad you are. And finally, the Father, who is just, says, okay, you've made your point. What do you say? And Jesus holds out his arms with scars and says, you're right, he's guilty, 
and I paid the full price for his sin. And the father says, forgiven! Satan has no place in the presence of God bringing sin because of the work of Christ. But let me tell you what the key to the whole thing is. Our confession. If you hold on to your sin and you don't confess it, Christ cannot advocate for you. Now, I do believe that all of our past, present, and future sins have been paid for on the cross. I don't believe it was just some sins. I don't believe it was just the past sins. I believe all sin is paid for on the cross. But I also know that it says that He is our representative to God. And we know that Satan is the accuser. And so I think it's important, even though my salvation is not in jeopardy, I'm going to stay clean with Jesus on this. I want my advocate to represent me before the Father as Satan is trying to run me down. Amen? The answer to hidden sin is always confession and repentance. There's no other way. Confess and repent. Confess and repent. You say, well, to whom should we confess? Well, the answer is in the question. We should confess to the person that we sinned against. If you sin secretly, confess your sin secretly. Let the Lord know secretly. Admitting publicly that you needed victory over sin. You don't need to go into the gory details of your private sin. Just let the body know. If God leads you in order to encourage others to do the same, I, I needed to ask God to forgive me for something that was going on in my life, and He has done that, and I'm thankful for it. That's a good thing. If you sin publicly, confess publicly. I think every single time when a pastor falls into moral sin, that pastor, before they let him go, they cut loose, they should, first of all, number one, they should... They should allow him to own his sin and stand before the body that he has pastored and that he has betrayed by the sin that he gave into, the moral failure, and state it. I sinned and I am sorry for what I did. This is what I did. I had an affair. This is what I did. I took money from the church. And then he should ask for forgiveness. He should let them know, I have gone before God, I've confessed it, and I've asked God to forgive me, and I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm not asking you to make me your pastor again. I'm not asking you to restore my position and my role. I want to be reconciled back to the body of Jesus Christ, period. He needs to be given that opportunity. Some probably wouldn't do it. Many would, if given the opportunity. So if it's public, confess it in public. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you know, a, a, a small group leader, accountability partner, and you sin, you, you need to at least let them know, I've lost victory in my life because of a sin, and I've taken it to God, and God has forgiven me, and I want you to know that. I'm not a perfect person. I am just like you, I'm, I'm desiring to walk with God, and I wanted you to know that, that I've taken this to God. It's important that we do it.
If you sin spiritually as a leader, maybe it's prayerlessness, maybe it's doubt, maybe it's unbelief, maybe criticism, maybe it's you're judging others, maybe it's a moral failure, then confess it to the church that you have created a hindrance because you've caused people to stumble if you've sinned in a public setting and if you're a leader. It does cause others to stumble. You owe them to confess it as sin and ask their forgiveness. Some won't be able to forgive you. They should. Everybody should because everybody's a sinner and God forgave us our sins, right? But some people aren't ready. That's okay. You don't have to own that. But you must own letting them know what you did and asking their forgiveness. Apologizing for what you did. C.H. Spurgeon, great, great Baptist preacher. He said, as soon as we are conscious of sin, the right thing is not to begin to reason with the sin or to wait until we have brought ourselves into a proper state of heart about it, but go, but to go at once and confess the transgression unto the Lord there and then. Amen. Don't play with sin. Which, by the way, is the opposite of King David. David goes further. It's interesting that when Uriah showed up, David asked him how he was doing, and you know, how are the people? How's the battle going? An awkward attempt to pretend that everything's fine. So David's covering up. He gave every appearance that things were normal when, when before God, nothing was going on that's normal. He goes further in the cover-up by encouraging Uriah to go home to his wife. And again, another attempt is made uh, by, by, by trying to somehow cover up his own sin and put this baby on another man. This is the mystery to iniquity that we talked about. It takes you farther than you want to go, and it keeps you longer than you want to stay. So when Uriah chose to sleep on the steps of the king's house, among the servants, this is like pouring coals on David's head. This is God trying to reach David through Uriah. David, just confess. Just come clean. Uriah is a man of integrity. I guess David messed with the wrong man's wife. That's the problem. David was counting on the fact that just as he did something that was wrong, that Uriah would not be so faithful to the king and so loyal and he would go ahead while he's, you know, coming home from battle and just go home and spend some time with his wife. In other words, the king disrespected Uriah. He stole from Uriah. Yet Uriah is showing loyalty and respect and faithfulness to the king. Uriah was nothing like King David. A Hittite. Nothing like the king of Israel. Again, God is giving David all of these opportunities to escape the trap of sin in his life. He could come clean and repent at any time, but he continues to show unrepentance. He's totally given to selfishness. He's totally given to sensuality. Now the plot thickens. Verse 12, And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in, the, in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. David got Uriah drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even 
even getting a little sauced, Uriah still showed respect and loyalty to David. See, this is David's appeal to Uriah to lower his standards so that he would lose sight of the integrity and loyalty and he'd go back and sleep with his wife. Let me get him drunk and then he won't think straight. He'll be led by his sensuality just like me. That's why you want to hang with godly people. Because there's a lot of people in the world who are in sin, and to make them feel better, they need you to join them. You know what it's like in a factory where people work there, they've worked there for years, they've got a certain speed that they work at, and you come in new, and man, you just tear it up. And you're producing more than they are producing. Does that challenge the team to rise up and work harder? No, it does not. They're like, you need to slow down, dude. You're making all of us look bad. As a Christian, hang out with people who are loyal to God, who are faithful to God, who desire to be faithful, who are big enough to confess their sins. That's the group you need to be with. They're not perfect but they are honest and transparent. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, here it is, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Here you've got a Hittite who's practicing New Testament theology <laughs> when the king of Israel is not. So verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah on the front, forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So having failed to cover his sin, David now becomes even more debased in his thinking. Now he wants Uriah dead. Many adulterers probably, I would assume, probably at least have a thought in their mind that enters, man, I just wish that spouse was not in the picture. It'd make it a whole lot easier for me. Some probably even think about and wish that the person was dead. And every once in a while, because my wife likes those detective shows, I cannot stand them, but she <laughs> loves them. And it'll be a story of some guy who hooked up with some girl. And now that girl says, if you could just take out my husband. And he does because he's dumb and ends up going to prison for it. Well, guess what? David is the king. He doesn't just wish it. He can command it. And that's what he did. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. I'm going to put him where I know that the men from that city that we're fighting against are the strongest. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. 
How interesting that David would use Uriah's integrity and loyalty to guarantee the delivery of the message that would take his life. David took advantage of loyalty and integrity. <laughs> Can you get more villainous, more corrupt in your thinking than this? This is King David, a man after God's own heart. Don't think for a second that the heart is not deceitful above all things. And make no mistake, Uriah was murdered just as surely as if David killed him with his own hands. David ordered it up. It's a murder. That's what it is. This also carries out David's original plot of sin. This man's wife was pregnant while he was off fighting for the king, and he never got home to see his baby. Oh, my. From that view... David looks like the winner. He's the hero. But from the view of the last couple chapters, we would have to say that David was a better servant than a king because as a servant, he would not lay a hand on King Saul. But as the king, he was willing to lay his hands on servants. This also shows how far God will go to redeem us from our sins, and I'm so thankful for that. Some of us would probably think, why would God put this in the Bible? Because God's not hiding truth. God is bringing the truth out, even the ugly truth. That the greatest king of Israel was an adulterer, was a murderer. Had a very big problem with sexual sin. Was a terrible parent. If you look at all of his children and what happened to them, he was a terrible, terrible parent. And yet, God still... When David repented, and he will next chapter, David still forgave him and redeemed him and used him. We look at what's happening in our world today with people who committed sins 15 years ago, and now all of a sudden they're getting called out for it, and they're losing their jobs over it. And I will tell you that when when someone abuses someone else, that needs to be exposed immediately. You never want to leave somebody in an abusive situation. But how do you know in the last 15 years that person hasn't truly repented of their sin like David? See, the world doesn't understand that. They don't understand regeneration in Christ. They don't know what it means to truly be transformed by Jesus, by the work of the Spirit. All they can do is know that if you did something in the past, guilty! No place for you. 15, 20 years ago, those same people would have moved on. And again, I want to say this. If it's abuse, there are some abuses that you need to pay for those. I understand that. Uh, they, they say that a pedophile will always be a pedophile. And that's how, the, that's how they treat them. In, in the years of my ministry, I've had pedophiles who came to the Lord. But you know what? We had to sit down with them and assign accountability partners that whenever they were on the grounds, they had to check in with the accountability partner at our services. Why? Because we were watching to make sure they were never in the same area as our children's ministry. Could have been 20 years ago. Doesn't matter. Some sins are that powerful to seduce and to control someone. 
So I understand all that. But in general, I'm telling you, God can redeem people's lives, even pedophiles. Now, they might be consequence, and we have to keep them in a structured environment. That's fine. But God can redeem. You don't treat them like they're still sinners. They're not. They're redeemed if they've come to Christ, and they've shown that they're willing to follow whatever methods, plans that you've laid out, a structured plan. Hard stuff, but I'll tell you, this is the God's business. This is what God does. Remember, somebody said, you can't let them come on your campus. And we said, whoa, 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 we're not a school. We're, we're a church. The whole purpose of church is redemption. You can't treat the church like the, like the school. In a school setting, you're right. You can't have them any, anywhere around the campus. We don't let them anywhere around, you know, children's ministry. But we are redemptive. Amen? David had a real problem. I'm going to tell you right now. If I, knowing what I know now about David, if I went back in time and was part of his kingdom, I'd keep an eye on my wife. Whenever that guy came around, I'm telling you right now, I'd have my eye on him. He's my king. He has a heart after God, but the guy's got a problem with women. <laughs> he had 300 wives. His son after him had 700. That's a thousand wives between two men. And God said clearly in Scripture, one woman, one man, period. That's it. That's what God wants. That's his desire. Oh, my goodness, what a mess. <laughs> so David indulged his sexual lust for years and ignored God's warning and ways of escape. Where did David first fall into problems with Bathsheba? All the way back 20 years earlier when he took on an extra wife. And that wasn't enough, so let me have another one. And that wasn't enough, let me have another one. That's the, that's the mystery to iniquity. Whatever you have... In terms of sinful satisfaction, it's never enough. You will want more. For a gossip, you're always looking for the next story. Then verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king, king's anger arises, arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they, were, they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to the king, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. <laughs> so when Joab, but first of all, let me just back up on this. When Joab talks about who struck Abimelech, 
He's referring to Judges chapter 9, verse 50. We studied that in our Sunday morning study, where Abimelech was killed coming too close to the wall of the city under siege. The idea is that Joab knew it was a bad military move to get too close to the wall, but he did it anyway because David wanted Uriah dead. And when David heard of the death of some of the men because they practiced poor battle tactics and got too close to the wall, his response was, these things happen. Exactly. Especially when you're covering up something. Otherwise, David would have been infuriated if Joab had taken them in too close to the wall. And otherwise, Uriah, or Joab would have never taken men too close to the wall. He's only obeying the king's command. Privately, he was thinking, now I can marry Bathsheba and give a plausible explanation for her pregnancy. I stayed with my plan, and it finally worked. This is where David is in his thinking. Verse 26, and when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. By the way, I do not believe that she was aware of David's planning to kill her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that Bathsheba knew of David's arrangements, okay? So I really believe she was innocent. But if your choice after adultery is marry the king or be put to death by stoning, you can understand why she's probably very happy that the king came after her. And as far as David's concern, taking another wife is nothing new for him. He's added wives like we get drinks of water every day, you know? On the surface, David marrying, is marrying this poor widow who's pregnant. Her husband would, would never come back from the battlefield and see their son. And our king, he is so wonderful that he took this poor widow and her pregnant, you know, her child, and he took them into his home. What a wonderful man of God he is. But the scripture ends in this chapter with what? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You can fool the people. You can even trick your conscience. But you will never fool the Lord with your sin. Not everybody's thrilled with David's actions. And I think that's important for us to see. By the way, this is the first time in the chapter that God is mentioned. This whole chapter is about David and his selfishness and his flesh and Bathsheba and her selfishness. And now God comes on the scene at the last verse, God was displeased. Just because God doesn't make his disappointment known throughout the entire chapter doesn't mean he didn't see it and doesn't mean he won't deal with it. He does in a very serious and tragic way, God deals with David's sin. David will repent, as we will see in the next chapter, but until he does, his heart is pricked by the Lord every single day that he lives. He cannot have peace in his heart by what he's done. In fact, take your Bible, let's close it up tonight, but let's look at Psalm chapter 32. Turn it to Psalm 32. Because this is the psalm that David wrote coming out of this experience where he had the relation with Bathsheba, and now he has repented. 
And this is what he wrote. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. How many of you are thankful for that tonight? That the Lord forgives our transgressions? He goes on, he says, whose sin is covered. When David said this, it was covered by the lambs and the bulls and the rams, the blood of the animals. But we know that Jesus was the final sacrificial lamb. So where God only covered sin through the blood of animals in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God doesn't cover our sin any longer. God literally removes the sin. That's why the Scripture says that we are justified. It's just as if we never sinned. That's how God sees you now. Wow. Verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now David was saying that with great humility because he knew that he had a lot of sin in his, on his plate. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted... Here it is. When I kept my sins inside of me, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as, the, as by the heat of the summer. God was all over him because of his sin. Verse 5, And I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's that simple, folks. Psalm 32 shows that David was under intense conviction during this time and that all the joy in his life had evaporated and David knew the stress and the agony of living in a double false life so he cries out to God, he confesses his sin, he repents of the sin, he sees his sin the way God sees sin and he gets right with the Lord. The great theologian F.B. Meyer said, the better the man, the dearer the price he pays for a short season of sinful pleasure. When you have too much sin in your heart, you can't possibly enjoy your relationship with God. You can't even enjoy your relationship with others. And when you go to bed at night, your conscience is guilty. It tells you you're guilty. I, I think the way to close tonight is the story in Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. If you want to write it down, you can turn there if you'd like. But in Luke 15, 1 through 7, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. They wanted to hear Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the Lord told them a parable. If I can explain what I just read to you from Scripture, Jesus is willing to sit and eat with sinners the people that were the outcasts, the people that society rejected. And he's eating with them. And this so infuriates the scribes and the Pharisees because they see themselves as righteous when truly the only righteous one is Christ. And he's sitting with all these unrighteous people. And they were unrighteous. And, and they complain about it. What, what's he doing eating with them? And here's what Jesus says to them in a parable. I can see that you're bothered by the fact that I'm eating with sinners. So I'm going to tell you 
how God sees sinners. And here's what the parable says. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing over a lost sheep, over a sinner. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. God loves sinners. God loved David even while he was committing these terrible, grievous acts of sin. Never stopped loving him. And like a good shepherd, he went out searching for him and he brought him home. Now, David pays the price in the next chapter. And so would a shepherd cause a sheep, a, a, a sheep that wanders, he would cause it to pay a price. If a sheep wanders too far from a shepherd and it continues to do that, you know, every once in a while you get this wild-haired sheep and this thing keeps wandering. You know what a shepherd does with his staff? This is known in the Middle East. This is what they would do. They would take that staff and they'd turn it around to the other end. and They would come behind that sheep and they would whack the hind leg and break it so the sheep couldn't run away. And you'd say, that's terrible, that's awful. The Lord chastises, He disciplines those that He loves. What would that shepherd do next? He would reach down and pick up the sheep that He just broke the leg. And He would take that sheep back to the pen. He would mend the leg and care for that sheep. That's how much He loved the sheep. That's what our Father did. He put our whack on His own Son so that we would know how much He loves us. He loved David. He loves us. Boy, what a message the world needs to hear. They need to hear this. Every one of you should be sharing this message with your friends, with your lost friends, with your family members, with your neighbors. They need to hear it. They need to, I had a chance this week again to witness to someone. So thankful for that. We had a good conversation. Take the opportunities. Look for them. Ask the Holy Spirit to open the doors for you to be able to share how much God loves them. See, if you truly love sinners, you'll be like Jesus. You'll go after them. You won't sit back and criticize them. I can't believe you did that when the Lord could have a laundry list of the things that you did. Let's pray. Father, tonight we are so thankful. Even in the Old Testament, we see your love showing up in such a vivid way. Next chapter, when you have to discipline David in order to get him to turn from his sin. But the reason you did it was because you loved David. You wanted to redeem him, bring him back into your favor. And you're the same with us. 
Your love never ends. Even when we're in sin, you, you still love us. And so, Lord, what a joy to come clean of our sin and know that our Father every single time forgives us. And He takes us. We might live with a consequence. There might be consequences. But we never question Your love for us. So, Lord, I pray that tonight in our personal lives that we would develop a story of God's love for us, of how He disciplined us and how we repented and came clean and how God redeemed us and gave us a ministry. And I pray, Lord, that we would go to people with that ministry and we would share it with them because in the same way that You loved us, You're calling us to love others. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you, church.